Again, I'll say it again, because I didn't have the recorder on. This is the Shil Ilui Nishnu Maslam, Ephraim Shmuel and Avram Ariya Cohen, and Chai Tova Bas Eliezer Mendela Cohen on the book of Yechezkel. This is uh, the 28th of June, 2021, and I'm just going to mute everybody. If anybody's got a comment, put it in the chat box. This is, should be, hopefully, will be the last shear on the first chapter of Yechezkel. Just to let you know, this is... Um, the, the first chapter of Yechezkel, if it does finish today, will have taken seven months. Seven months, which uh, it's not a record for me, but so it's pretty close. Um, I can't ever remember spending seven months on one chapter of Tanakh. I can remember spending a year and a half on one chapter, on the first chapter of Beratius, giving Shirim. But in Tanakh, in the Nach, in the Nevi'im, I don't remember spend, spending seven months going through one chapter. In any event, we are up to the last verse in chapter 1, which is really the culmination and the end, the climax, and the end of Yechezkel's vision of the chariot of God. Um, we've covered pretty much every every issue uh, that's been raised so far. There are one or two things that are left. Um, I might introduce some stuff that I've written myself on this last verse. Uh, it's one of the verses in the Tanakh that I've actually written on myself. Um, so let's take it away. So chapter 1, verse 28. Um, we'll read the verse as we normally do, and we'll try and put some context to the verse. Um, again, if you, anybody's got any comments, anybody's got any questions, do not be uh, afraid just to put it into the chat button, uh, chat icon. If you, if it's a matter of, you know, international import, you can actually just uh, break into my narrative. Okay, chapter chapter 1, verse 28. Kamare Hakeshes. Like the appearance of the rainbow, uh, like the appearance of a rainbow on the, in the cloud on a rainy day, Cain Mara Hanoga Sovivhu. So was the appearance of the brightness round about it, round about. Mara de Muskavod Hashem. And that was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. Now at that point, that's the end of the vision. That's the end of the vision. And then Yechesel tells you at that point, when I saw that imagery, Voere, when I saw it, Voepol Alponai, I fell on my face. Vaishma Kol Medaber. And at that point I heard a voice speaking to me. So let's take this verse piece by piece. There's a lot to be said in this verse. Um, again, last week we discussed the idea, the previous verse, which was a verse really that uh, you're not supposed to study in any great detail. Um, but we had a little go at trying to understand what was going on with the Chashmal and the paradoxes that the Chashmal um uh, present and why it's impossible really to get a, a handle on verse 27. But in this verse, uh, Yechezkel starts by describing uh, the Keshes, the rainbow. Um, that the rainbow, so to speak, represented the appearance of God's image, of God's essence. And we'll see, we'll try and put that into some sort of perspective. But the first thing to understand is the word Keshes is a very important word in Tanakh. Uh, it means a bow, right? Uh, as in a bow and arrow, but we know it better 
um, when it describes the rainbow. So if you remember in the beginning of Bereshus, at the start of the book of Bereshus, the generations after Adam started to descend into um, some, some type of paganism and uh, improper sexual behavior, impo- improper social behavior, corruption, violence, Chomos, it was described as, Vatimoleho Oretz Chomos, the world was full of um, violence, it means um, extortion and, and the like, but also it was full of uh, sexual misconduct, so that God brought a flood, and at the end of the flood, um, when all mankind was wiped out, apart from Noah's family, God made the following declaration. Now, this is uh, very important because the word Keshes appears here in this declaration by God on a number of occasions. It's not at all clear um, what the word actually means. Does it mean a rainbow or not? Because there are various scientific questions that uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have to deal with. But here's God's declaration. This is Bereshis, um after the flood. God says, God says to the children of Noah, I will establish a promise with you. I will never destroy the world again uh, using the uh, waters of a flood. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God says, Zos os bris. This is the sign of the promise. Now, the word os is a, a very important word. What we'll see is the word os, people normally translate it, the Christians translate it as a miracle, but it's not what it means. Christians are not famous for getting Hebrew words correctly translated. The word os is, doesn't mean a miracle. The word os means a sign. And uh, the word for miracle in Hebrew is nes or pele or um, various other words, which we'll, which we'll deal with uh, as we go on. Um, Moface is another word. Moface is a, is a type of miracle, but os is not a, a miracle. So God says, This is the sign um, of the promise, which I'm making with you, me and you, and all the living creatures that inhabit the earth. Ladoros Olon. And this, this promise will last till the end of time. Eskashti, my rainbow. I'm going to translate it as rainbow for the time being. Eskashti, my rainbow, nosati be onon. I have placed in the cloud. Behoisala os bris. And again, it'll be a sign of the promise. It's between me and the earth. onon al When there are clouds above the earth. That the rainbow will appear in the cloud. And the implication is God, so to speak, when he looks at the rainbow, he'll remember his promise, which is a very disturbing verse because you, you, why would God need uh, to be reminded of a promise that he made? Okay, so that's uh, an interesting, the interesting language of the, the verse. I'll remember my promise when I look at the rainbow between me and between you. And between all the living creatures on earth, and there will no longer be a flood to destroy all flesh. It seems very, very repetitive. This. The next verse, and there will be a rainbow in the cloud. 
and I will see it, to remember my everlasting promise between myself, God, the God of Din, the God of Justice, and between every living creature, and all the living beings on earth. Right at the end of the declaration, God says to Noach, Again, Zos O Sabris, this is the sign of the, the promise, Ashahakimosi Beni Uvenkol Bosor Shaloris. This is the sign, the sign of the promise that I make between myself and all flesh on the earth. Now, this is a very, very long winded declaration. God could have just said, you know, when you see the rainbow in the clouds, you'll see, you'll uh, Realize that uh, that's that's uh, a sign that I'm not going to destroy the world. But it it runs to um, uh, seven verses, seven verses virtually all all virtually saying the same thing and repeating the the following words: Keshes or Kashti, the rainbow or my rainbow, and the other thing that it kept, keeps repeating is Osbris. It's a sign of a promise. Now we have to deal with these words. Now, normally the word keshes, um, it's, um, we'll, we'll let's start with the word keshes. Ospris we'll deal with shortly. Um, the keshes, therefore, the rainbow is uh, a promise that God will never completely destroy humanity again. The significance of the word keshes when describing the rainbow is uh, brought out by the Ramban. The Ramban has got a long essay on the word keshes. Essentially, in his introduction here, he writes that the word keshes really means a bow, uh, as in an army. An army has archers and they carry a bow and arrow. And that's the idea when David HaMelech took over from King Shaul. When King Shaul died, <clears throat> one of the first things he declares to the Jewish army is, you guys need to, know, to learn how to use the bow, keshes, how to use the bow. So it's used as a, an expression of an armament. Uh, and it hints to the, as the Ramban points out, it's a hint to the idea of war and violence and destruction. And the Ramban says that's the reason why the Keshes, the rainbow, it's described as a Keshes, as a bow. So God uses the symbol of war to intimate the opposite, to show that he would not shoot any arrows, so to speak, at the earth from heaven ever again. And as the Ramban continues, the rainbow is the reminder that despite the possibility that destruction of mankind or a certain group within mankind is appropriate and is due by dint of their sins, um, and they would really sh should be due destruction, God, so to speak, holds back that destructive power, which is represented by this rainbow. And... Um, What's interesting is that uh, on that basis, um, that description by the Ramban uh, is supported by a Gomorrah. The Gomorrah is in Ksubos, in Ksubos on Daf Ein Zayin Omer Beis, on page 77b. And uh, the Gomorrah there infers uh, that certain righteous generations never saw a rainbow. The sight of a rainbow was never seen in certain generations, because in righteous generations there's no need for a rainbow. Uh, in righteous generations, there's no need for God to show a sign that he's not going to destroy the world because you've been misbehaving. Because in a generation that doesn't misbehave, there's no need for that sign. The sight of the rainbow was inappropriate. And the Gemara says there were certain generations that there was a, a, a rainbow never occurred. 
um, because there was never a suggestion that that generation would use such a catastrophic event. The Gemara discusses the opinion, the, the discussion between Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi and Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi found Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai the paradise, in the paradise. Now it's not exactly clear what the Gemara means by that. Sorry, just have to excuse me for one second. Just hold on for one second. Sorry about that. Sorry about Can you... I just want to mute everybody. One second. Who's got questions already? Hold on one second. So in truth, verse Tessalus, it's a reminder to God, not to man. And every living thing. Yes, it's, it's a very difficult passage to deal with. We're not going to deal with that passage now. We haven't got time to, to go in, into that passage in Noah uh, in any great detail. Uh, it's just to... I only brought it to just give you an understanding that... Uh, God makes it very clear, you know, that his declaration is very long, very long, seems to be very long-winded. Anyway, getting back to this Gemara. So the Gemara says that Rabbi Shubh and Levi found Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in the paradise. Exactly where, which part of the paradise it was. The paradise is a place, um, an intermediary place where the Torah exists in its liquid form, so to speak. We, we understand that, um, our Torah, the Torah that we have, is really split into four pieces. Um, there's Pshat, the Pei Reish Dalad Samach. We understand that uh, there's Pshat, the uh, simple understanding of the text. That's the Pei. We have a Reish, which um, um, which is Remez, where sometimes the Torah, the text will hint at something, but without actually saying it. That's the Reish. The Dalad is Drush, Midrash. So that's even more uh, sort of uh, enclosed and hidden from view. That's designed to teach Halacha, or it's designed to teach moral messages, or it's designed to give a, a different type of insight in, than the um, literal meaning or the simple meaning of the text. And finally, there's the Samach, which is sowed. The secrets behind the, the language of the Torah, those, those are the four uh, parts to the Torah, the way the Torah is split up. And uh, in the world that we live in, uh, they're, they're categorized in four different ways. Uh, Pshat is not Remez, Remez is not Drush, Drush is not Sod, and Sod is not Pshat. They're all different things. In the intermediary world, which I'm not going to discuss now, the intermediary world between God's realm and our realm, the, the Torah itself is liquid in that the Pei, the Resh, the Dalad, and the Samach are all the same. They, they're like water. They, they're not split up into particular categories. They roll into each other like water is uh, homogenous. Um, so the four parts of the Torah, so, so to speak, roll into each other. And they're connected in the way that water, um, water of a river, it's just, it's just a, a homogenous, um, uh, element or homogenous um, construction and uh, so the Torah essentially really is like water or like glass as it's described in the Gemara in Chagiga in any event uh, it's a place that Rabbi Shimber Yechoi used to go to because Rabbi Shimber Yechoi is the author of the Zohar 
So the Zohar is a, a source of Kabbalistic uh, understanding of the Torah, and it's a place the the Zohar itself takes a lot of its um, takes a lot of its text and takes a lot of its um, message from the idea of paradise, where so to speak. Simple understanding and secrets sort of mingle in and out of each other. If anyone's read the Zohar, they'll know exactly what I mean. In any event, Rabbi Yeshua, he found Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochoi in the paradise. And he was sitting there on a golden stool or some, some golden stool. Tachtike uh, Pisa, the Gemara describes it as a golden stool. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochoi said to him, are you the son of Levi? And he's talking to Rabbi Shubh and Levi, and he said to him, yes. The Rabbi Shubh Bar Yochai said to him, was a rainbow ever seen in your days? And Rabbi Shubh and Levi said, yes. So Rabbi Shubh Bar Yochai snapped back at him. If so, you cannot be the son of Levi. Even though you're called Rabbi Shubh and Levi, you can't be the son of Levi. As Levi was a completely righteous man and lived during his lifetime of a, in a completely righteous generation. So no rainbows were ever visible, as they are a sign that the world deserves to be destroyed by a flood. That's whereas the merit of the righteous protects the world from such things. So he said he, that's basically the source for this idea that in a righteous generation we don't have rainbows. And the Gomorrah there comments that um, it's not true, that there was no rainbow, rainbow during, seen during the time of Yeshua and Levi, because he and his generation also were completely righteous, so rainbows were unnecessary. So, uh, but Rabbi Yeshua thought, I don't want to take credit for myself by presenting myself as a tzaddik, as a righteous person, so I will be silent and not contradict the words of the Rajvi, of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochoi. So that is a source of the Ramban, that uh, in the, the, the rainbows are only seen in generations where there's a possibility, where people where there's a possibility of, of the world or particular parts of the world being destroyed by flood as it was at the time of Noah. So that's when you need the promise or the reminder that God won't do it. Um, by contrast, the generation of Yechezkel was steeped in evil, which is why we are where we are in this book. Um, Yechezkel is already in exile. The rest of the Jewish people are on their way to exile. Uh, there's going to be a forthcoming obliteration of Yerushalayim and the destruction of the base of Midrash, which will take place within six years from this, this point in time. So that Yechezkel's vision of the rainbow was, so to speak, an essential message to him that despite the failure of the Jewish people um, over a very long period of time, almost since two, three hundred years, that the ensuing devastation would only be temporary. That uh, what's going to happen in the in the land of Israel, and the, the fact that Yerushalayim will be ploughed like a field, and the Temple Mount will look will have a shual, will have foxes running in and out of it, um, and that devastation would only be temporary, and that God's promise at the time of the flood was still guaranteed, and that the Jews would emerge from exile and would rebuild. That is the simple message to take out of what. Yechezkel is seeing the sign of the rainbow, that uh, it's a sign, it's a reminder to Yechezkel, it's a reminder to the Jewish people that even though everything looks black at the moment, uh, everything lo looks black in terms of, uh, you know, the Babylonians have arrived in Yerushalayim, 
people are disappearing all the time, and eventually the base of Middash is going to be destroyed, and the Jews are going to go into exile, and after that there's going to be another exile. Nevertheless, the sign of the rainbow is that um, it's not going to be permanent. After uh, he writes, how can Rambam make that statement as Levi was a colleague of Shimon at the Rebbe Shechem? No, uh, Levi, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi we're talking about. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, one of the uh, Amoraim. No, 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 he means, no, he's talking about his father, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi. He's talking about Levi, the father of Rabbi Yeshua. Not, not Levi, Levi. So, so, yeah. Yeah, so, so, uh, it'd be a bit, if he was talking about the original Levi, it'd be a bit difficult. The original Levi was a bit of a character, right? We know that Shimon and Levi were a pair of characters. Um, they wouldn't fit into our society for the perspective of political correctness. Um, and uh, critical race theory. They, they would be really problematic characters. In any event, um, so that is the, the, the really the really simple, um, superficial approach to understanding why he's seeing a rainbow, why Yechezkel's seeing a rainbow, that that's a sign of, of God, that it's a sign that uh, exile, destruction, persecution won't last forever, and it'll, eventually the Jewish people will be reborn in the land of Israel. And you can even extend it to the idea that eventually, after all the exiles of Jews, will be returned to the land of Israel and establish the Messianic kingdom. Um, but obviously there's a lot more going on in this verse than that. Um, before we dig a bit deeper into this pasuk, into this verse, um, I want to just give over a contemporary thought based on the above analysis uh, that I think is very inspirational uh, after all the devastation of Jewish history. I mean, if you look at Jewish history, not, not only Jewish history, world history, starting off uh, with the flood, for example, and uh, the Jewish people exiled to Egypt for so long, the exiles that came later of both uh, Israelite kingdoms, the southern kingdom of Yehuda, the northern kingdom, then uh, the problems with the Babylonians, the problems with the Persians, the problems with the Assyrians, the problems with the Romans, the problems with the Greeks, the problems with the Catholic Church, the Crusades, the Spanish expulsion, the Holocaust, the list is almost endless. Chelmanitsky massacres, it's, it's, the whole thing is almost endless. The, the list of catastrophes that have befallen Jewish people since the creation of the world is, is, is a list. You know, you can, there's a book that's, um, it's supposed to be a reference book, but it's uh, easy to read. It's, uh, it's a, a timeline of Jewish history. And it goes through the dates since the day of creation up to, I don't know, till about the year 2000. And it, it's basically a litany of the murder of Jews. Um, that Those are the outstanding dates. It's the day the Jews got expelled from here, the day the Jews got expelled from there, the pogrom here, the pogrom there, the expulsion from Spain. You know, the, the murder here, the murder there. And that's Jewish history. The list is almost endless. So I I just want to sort of add an inspirational note to this idea, because I think this verse essentially coming right at the end of the experience of Yechezkel is supposed to be, is designed to be inspirational on the one hand, uh, but it's also got other messages which we'll deal with shortly, but I just want to give you a, a, an inspirational message. The, Jonathan Lear, who's um, one of the great uh, philosophers of the 20th century, a Harvard professor, um, he wrote the following, um, not Jewish, and he made the following 
uh, statement. He said, hope. What is hope? He says, hope is living in the vulnerability that we share as humans who are limited and who don't know. To be born into this world is to be born not omnipotent and not, not omniscient. A being enters this world with lack, with a sense of limitation, with a sense of not knowing. And we reach out instinctively as infants, assuming, although we have no reason to believe it, that our needs will be met, that our yearnings will be appeased. There is something in us that reaches for nourishment. We are born with great vulnerability and hope at the same time. The hope is born amongst those who are willing to risk yearning for what is yet unknown. And uh, I think that's, uh, I think that is, that could be the epitaph of the Jewish people. That um, we don't know what's going to happen next. We've suffered terrible. We've got no right to assume that everything is going to be all right. And yet the, you know, we've got the, the, our, our, our national anthem is Atikva, the hope. It's the hope of the Jewish people, even though the actual Atikva itself has been butchered by uh, secular Zionists. Nevertheless, the, the idea behind the poem, which was written by Frumju, uh, is very, is, 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 in essence, describes the Jewish people. After all this persecution, exile and everything, we're the people of hope. And I just want to make a, really a contemporary comment here. Uh, when I was writing on this um, chapter of Yechezkel, um, I don't know if some of you have made notice, some of you may have not noticed, but in the course of the last uh, seven months when we were discussing this chapter, um, quite, not a lot, but some, some of the explanations have been um, of my own design rather than from uh, the commentators themselves. Some, some people have noticed it, some people, well, it just seems to, I just try to mingle it in with the explanations of everybody else, of all the other commentators. But I just want to point something out. Um, a, poignant, a poignant song emerged out of the mass exodus out of Europe um, that was written by a Jew named Yip Harburg. I don't know if anyone's heard of Yip Harburg. Um, he wrote a song. The lyrics, lyrics came from the youngest of four children born to a Jewish immigrant family. This Yip Harburg, he, he was a, that's, his, that's the name he changed it to. His real name was Isidore Hochberg. Um, he grew up in a Yiddish-speaking uh, uh, Orthodox house in New York. He wrote the lyrics to this particular song. The music was written by someone called Harold Arlen. Uh, also, that's not his... Harold Arlen wasn't his real name, and he was a chazan in his early days. And his real name was Harlan Arloch. So you got two immigrants, both from Lithuania um, and uh, Russia, Lithuania... Uh, from very, very religious backgrounds, who got together and they wrote a song. And the song was voted the number one song by Recording Industry Association, National Endowment of the Arts. Um, and it became the number one selling song of the 20th century, in 20th century America. Um, I've not given you the title yet. I don't know if anybody's cottoned on to what the title is. Uh, yes, correct. We'll deal with this in a second. Um, so they wrote this very, they wrote the song and they reached, if you listen to the words of the song, which I'll read to you in a second, in writing the song, they reached very deep into their Jewish roots. And even the melody is very Jewish and takes you back to the shtetl, if you think about it. Uh, they reached very 
deeply into their Jewish roots, into their Jewish soul. And of course, they wrote an unforgettable me- melody with prophetic words, going back to the vision of Yechezkel, uh, whether they realized it or not. And um, if you read the lyrics of this song in their Jewish context, they're no longer about wizards and uh, the land of Oz, but they're really about Jewish survival and the, the tikva, ha-tikva, the hope. Somewhere, I shall sing it to you, you sing it. Somewhere over the rainbow, way up high, there's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby. Somewhere over the rainbow, skies are blue, clouds high over the rainbow, makes all your dreams come true. When trouble melts like lemon drops, high above the chimney tops, that's where you'll find me. Somewhere over the rainbow, blue birds fly. Birds fly over the rainbow. Why, oh, why can't I? That song, by the way, no applause necessary. Um, I know my singing voice is not that great. But you, but you, the, the melody is very Jewish. The melody comes out of a, a Yiddish background. Um, anybody who knows anything about um, Yiddish po- pe- poetry and Yiddish song, uh, can, that, that melody is, is extremely Jewish. The words, as we'll see, are extremely Jewish. That song was written in 1939. Um, the lyrics and the music were written in 1939. At the same time, exactly the same time, uh, in 1939, the Piacenza Rebbe, Rebbe Kalman Shapiro, um, was writing about the terrible events unfolding in front of his eyes. Um, he was in Warsaw when the Nazis assaulted Warsaw in the final, in the aerial bo- bombing, he lost his son and his daughter-in-law. Um, after the invasion uh, into Warsaw, um, one second. after the invasion into uh, Warsaw, um, the Rebbe, the Piacenza Rebbe set up a secret shul in the ghetto. He invested enormous effort to maintain Jewish life in the ghetto. Even after his horrific loss, the horrific loss of his son and his daughter-in-law, um, he was able to survive the ghetto liquidation, avoiding most of the tragic deportations to Treblinka. But eventually, of course, he made his way and uh, out of the ghetto with his arms up, was taken to a work camp near Lublin. Um, after the ghetto, the ghetto uprising was crushed, and although he was, he had the opportunity to escape. Um, he refused to do so and was killed on uh, November the third, nineteen forty-three. Now, just going back to nineteen thirty-nine, at the time that the song "Somewhere Over the Rainbow" was being written uh, for the screenplay of uh, "The Wizard of Oz" in the United States. At the same time, in 1939, after he lost his son and his daughter, he penned the following words just before Rosh Hashanah. And um, the, only extent, the, extent, the only extent copy of this and his other sermons and writings were, were put in a milk crate and were finally discovered by a construction worker after the war. They became the basis for the, the work uh, by him in his name, which is one of the most brilliant books about the Holocaust that anyone could ever read. Unfortunately, I don't think it's in English. It's called Eish Kodesh, Holy Fire. 
And he writes as follows. Listen to what he writes. He writes, Kivisi Hashem Kivsa Nafshi, quoting Tehillim, the chapter 27th chapter of Tehillim. Uh, I hope in you. My hope, Kivsa Nafshi, my soul hopes for you. I hope, this is what he writes, I hope that all of Israel will be redeemed. I have a hope. What gives me hope is that we have in Jewish tradition a framing of calamity. We have a way of making sense of that which makes no sense. Looking out at my Hasidim, I see that we have a tradition that when God created the world, God made many attempts before creating this one. God was creating worlds and destroying them. And then eventually there was this one. So I know that the way our tradition looks at the world is that there is a world that comes after destruction. After this, I know another world will be born. We are ever reborn, this Jewish family and this human family, like the phoenix who rises from the ashes. We are the people of the rainbow. We are the people of hope. Our strength is to forever long for that particular risk that is involved in birthing hope, believing in and taking those risks for the sake of our souls. And those are his words that we are the people of the rainbow, the people of the rainbow, the people of hope. And what I want to suggest here, after reading that, I was very taken with, with his words, I was very taken with the words of the song that, um, that were written almost at exactly the same time. It's, uh, it's frightening to think that, you know, the way God arranges stuff. Um, and it occurred to me, this is just something that occurred to me, maybe Echeskel sees in his vision that rainbow of hope. Remember, he's in exile. He's a prophet in exile. The Jewish people are people in exile. The Jewish people look back at Yerushalayim. The people in Babylonia, the Jewish people look back at Yerushalayim and they see only devastation. They see the end. That's all they can see. So my suggestion is that maybe Yecheskel sees in his vision here the, the, the rainbow of hope, that sign, the promise, that after all the destruction and exile that's waiting the Jews throughout the forthcoming millennia, which Yecheskel will never see. He'll never see the Chelmenitsky massacres. He'll never see the expulsion from Spain. He'll never see what the uh, Persians did. He'll never see what the Romans did. He'll never see what the Germans did. But he's seen, he's seen enough in his lifetime. Um, and, and what he's seeing when he sees that rainbow is that of all the destruction and exile that's awaiting the Jews throughout the forthcoming millennia, that after all that has passed, and the rain has stopped, and the clouds have parted, there will be a place that God has determined will be somewhere over the rainbow, where all our hopes come true. So, which is the words of the song, which is, you know, a Jewish soul crying out, even though it's a song from the Wizard of Oz, it's the, it's the song of the Jewish soul, that somewhere over the rainbow, uh, where skies are blue, with the Evan Sapir, which we discussed last week, which was... Uh, the color of Tchelis, the color of uh, um, um, light blue, a place where all our hopes can come true. So that's that's uh, it's really an interlude in the thought that I had regarding Yechezkel and this idea with that, which I read here from this book, this tremendous book, which everyone should read if they get the chance to do it, which is called Eish Kodesh, um, Holy Fire, which was written by the Piacenza Rebbe. Uh, anyway, 
let's let's go back to uh, that's a sort of interlude. <clears throat> I just want to take a deeper look at the idea of what Yechezkel is seeing here. He's seeing as a, a rainbow. I want to take a deeper look at the the idea of a rainbow here. And again, I want to go back to the way the Torah describes the rainbow. An os. God describes it as an os. As I explained to you, an os is a sign. Nothing to do with miracles, right? An os is a sign. It's never a miracle. Uh, a, a moface or a nace, those are the Hebrew words for miracle. The word os describes a natural phenomenon rather than a miracle, <coughs> which would seem to be rational or it would seem to be a rational way to understand the verses in Beratius. After all, a rainbow isn't really a miracle, right? So it didn't take long for humanity to discover what a rainbow actually is. It's a meteorological phenomenon that is caused by reflection, refraction and dispersion of light in water droplets, resulting in a spectrum of light appearing in the sky. It takes the form of a multicolored circular arc. We're all familiar with it. <coughs> the question is... <coughs> The flood took place in the year 1656 after creation. And uh, the problem is, are we to believe that there was no rainbow until after the flood? After all, it's clear that it rained before the flood. If you look in Beratius chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, it seems very straightforward that there should have been rainbows from almost from the first week. This is uh, chapter 2 in Beratius, verse 5 and 6. Now, no tree was yet on the earth. Um, Neither did any plant yet grow. Why was that? Because God hadn't brought any rain yet on the earth. They were under the... Uh, people that have been to my creation, she will understand that they were there in potential. All the organic material was there in potential, but it hadn't grown yet. Um, um, and there was no man to work the soil. And a mist ascended from the world. And watered the entire surface of the ground. So, guess what? After day four, at least, there was a sun. There was rain, there were clouds. The natural assumption has to be that there was also rainbows. In fact, during the long lives of Adam and Chava and their long-lived descendants, spanning 1,656 years before the flood, one has to assume there were hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of rainbows across the world. So why are we suddenly introduced to this new phenomena only after the flood? God says, you know, a big, big chiddish, something... Unknown. You know, I'm placing my rainbow in the clouds. And that will be a sign of my promise. It will appear in the clouds, God said. It will appear in the clouds. God's telling you that up until that point, there was no rainbows. How could that be? 1,656 years, where it's rained, where the sun's been out, where there's been clouds in the sky, and there's been no rainbow? How could that be? 
So it's a very intriguing question. And um, I want to suggest the following. Uh, when God created the world, uh, does everyone understand the question here? That this Keshes is, is something that, uh, it, the idea that it's something that God describes it, Venirasa. You will, you will see it. That's what he's telling the sons of Noah. This is something new. You're going to see a rainbow in the cloud. Well, what about all the other rainbows? For the last 1656 years, what happened to them? So, I think the answer is as follows. Uh, when God created the world, uh, does anybody want to suggest an answer? Anybody? Who's wrote, who, who wrote this? Effie wrote, the letter Kesh has consisted of three of the last four letters. I have alpha, it's never the total end. No, it's always the measure of hope, notwithstanding. Correct. Very good. That's absolutely right. Yeah, sorry, Harvey, what did you want to say? No, God's saying, Ladoro Som, this Keshes you're going to see for, for all time. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. He, he, God makes it very clear that that's true in his language. In the, in the language he uses, I'll just read it again to you. He, he uses that very language. He uses the language, Ladoros Olam. You'll see this Osbris Ladoros Olam <clears throat> for all generations. But that's, that's the, the question here really is what the heck's going on with this, uh, this, um, oh, so I think, I think you're quite right. Uh, I don't know where you get that from, but, um, I've written extensively on this issue. Um, and I think you're quite right. So I'll I'll just uh, uh, um, flesh out something a point that Ephraim's made here. So when God created the world, his first the first recorded creation of light was in Bereshit chapter one verses three and four. Uh, God said, "Let there be light, and there was light." God saw that the light was good. We discussed this in an earlier year. And God separated between the light and the darkness. Now, Rashi says this light, this perfect light, um, that would serve as the ignition eventually on day four for the sun and the stars was compressed light. Light that was so perfect that Rashi describes it as follows. Rashi describes the light that was created on um, on the uh, on the first day, as follows: It was so pure, so perfect that God said it, it's it's inappropriate for wicked people to have benefit from it. So eventually, God, so to speak, took it away and put it away for the tzaddikim in the world to come. So God saw that this light was not appropriate for the wicked to benefit from it. So he separated it for the righteous in the world to come. And I want to suggest the following. This original light was so pure that all its constituent parts that today we call the electromagnetic spectrum were so compacted that nothing could cause them to become diffused. So that although we view light today as separate bands, 
and we view the electro electromagnetic waves within each frequency uh, and with each band we got different names for them. We got radio waves, we call them microwaves, infrared light, visible light, the visible spectrum, ultraviolet light, x-rays, gamma rays, etc, etc. There's a, a almost a never-ending um, spectrum within the electromagnetic spectrum. Nevertheless, at this point in creation, when God created light, all facets of this perfect light were visible to the original creations. Adam and Chava and their offspring um, could see light as one indivisible medium. And the negative, debilitating, life-threatening effects of portions of the spectrum, which we know are debilitating and life-threatening, microwaves, x-rays, gamma rays, etc., etc., had no debilitating effect on the creations, on the beings that were created by God, because they were part of a self-contained, indivisible creation designed for everlasting life in the world to come. They weren't designed to have any negative effects. The light was compressed. The creations could see light in its totality, as Rashi described. Rashi described that the light was perfect, too perfect, in fact, that eventually God took it away. Remember, infrared light, uh, in terms of uh, causing damage to human beings, infrared light can emit thermal energy that can harm your body. The microwaves can heat the water molecules in, in, in the body, the tissues of a, a person's body, affecting the body's moisture levels. Gamma rays are the most dangerous because they can warp the body's cells, etc., etc. X-rays, all these things are all, even the, even the, um, the visible spectrum it, uh, um, can cause damage to the body. So Adam and Chava could have lived forever. So could their descendants. The aging, destructive power, the destructive energy of the light and the sun should never have affected them negatively, no matter what their exposure was. And the reality is that the only reason why they died was because of the sin that took place at the in the Garden of Eden that led to their mortality, uh, the, led to the end of their immortality, and led to the following: they're being kicked out the garden. God says to the man with a sweat of your brow, "Will you eat bread?" Ad until you return to the ground. Ki because from there you were taken. Ki ad al because you were dirt, and you return to dirt. So that's the reason why they died. But the the light that God created at the beginning of creation. The perfect, compressed, world to come, eternal, life-giving light, light continued to shine so that even though human beings were now destined to be mortal, the inability of this perfect, compressed light to age or damage or destroy human tissue meant that human beings continued until after the time of the flood to live extremely long lives. You know, people carried on living up to the time of the flood 900 years. And the reason why they died had nothing to do with illness or anything else, or the effects of the sun, or the effects of light, or anything, or the environment, nothing. The reason why people died was because of the sin that took place in the Garden of Eden. After the flood, however, 
God, so to speak, abandons the idea of this perfect light, as Rashi describes. At this point, God hides this light away for the righteous in the world to come, which is the place of eternal life. What we are now left with after the flood and the change in the environment is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, as the pure light is allowed to diffuse into the light we have today, the independent elements of the spectrum gain autonomy uh, to affect the creation as their individual wavelengths and makeup can now be expressed. Visible light can now uh, can only now be visible prismatically. Before, light was light. All elements of light were in one photo. You couldn't it couldn't be split with water by refraction, by reflection, by diffusion, by, pr- by using a prism. It just couldn't be broken down. After the flood, God has te- made a change, as Rashi points out. That light has been taken away. That light has been taken, removed and put in the world to come. The light that's left can now be diffused. And it can be fused, diffused prismatically particularly via the medium of water, so that a human being can perceive the seven colors that are are the constituents of the visible spectrum. Um, And God uses, we'll see why, but God uses this new phenomenon as a sign of the fact that he'll never destroy the earth again. The idea of this being the perfect sign to remind humanity of this promise is that the rainbow appears via interaction with the secondary medium which is water, which is the tool of the flood. The combination of the the light, the new light, and the waters that remind people of the flood, they combine to create the rainbow as a reminder that on the one hand, people are going to die now, that their lives are going to be shorter because light is diffused, but on the other hand, God is never going to destroy the world. Now, the downside to this new reality was that now the other, now invisible elements of the spectrum, the radio waves, the microwaves, the infrared, the ultraviolet, and uh, the X-rays and the gamma rays are suddenly affecting the creation as they had never done before. They're now creating circumstances and effects never experienced before on the planet by uh, organic beings. The negative ones amongst these new effects was the damage to human tissue and therefore more rapid aging. So what you find is after the flood, we find humanity's life expectancy being reduced rapidly so that after only a few generations, despite the DNA inherited by their long-lived ancestors, human beings were dying much earlier and the rate of deterioration of lifespan was staggeringly quick certainly in historic terms, so that in 10 generations after the flood, human life expectancy had been reduced to only 12% of what it had originally been. So that is my understanding of the rainbow, that the rainbow is a double-edged sword. The rainbow is the key. It's a sign. It's a created sign. And in that, in that respect, it's a change in nature. On the one hand, it now gives proof or gives us a sign that God will never destroy the world, however bad things get. On the other hand, 
It is a tool. It is a tool by which humanity starts to age um, much quicker and the life expectancy of human beings starts to decrease. Let me see if there's any questions here. One second. <coughs> Uh, yeah, who wrote this? Benjamin, why would God, who is eternal, create an immortal man, which is, which was his intention in creation? Surely an eternal being can only be an attribute of God. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. Only God, what? I don't, I don't agree with you. I don't agree with you. Um, I don't. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's true. The, the word death and God, the word death and God can't be put in the same sentence. So the word death and God, they they they're contradicting each other. Death in human beings, that's not a contradiction. Um, in a, in a in a in a world in a world where man was would be immortal, that doesn't mean man can't die. It means that man, if as long as no one else kills him, won't die. He won't die of natural causes. That doesn't mean that another human being can't kill him, can't chop his head off. It's, the, the idea is not that uh, man was immortal in the sense that even if someone chopped your head off, you'd grow another head. That wasn't the idea of immortality. The idea of immortality was that human beings, all things being equal, unless they were... Um, killed by another human being would not die. Whereas if a, another human being killed them, they'll certainly die. Okay. Um, Afri. The unitary light of creation may well have considered the unification of light as corpuscles and light as waves. That might be a revolution, that might be a revolution unification of the opposing theories. It, it, it can be, but, I've written extensively about this, and uh, there are mathematicians in at uh, MIT that agree with me, and there are mathematicians at MIT that disagree with me and think I'm an absolute heretic for even suggesting it. So yeah, we could have that conversation from now till you know uh, now till the end of the world. In any event. No, I'm not going into it. That's that's. I'm not. I, it does, and I'm not going into it because uh, I've written. I've I've written 400 pages on that very subject. So if you want to listen, you want to read it, you're welcome to read it. Well, you're actually not because I've not published it. So and I'm not going to. But um, you're you're right. It it does make uh, it, it does have implications for the idea of. Um, so the idea of time, light and time, the relationship between uh, light and, and our understanding of what time is and time, spa uh, space time, um, you're quite right. But it's not something I'm going to get involved in. Uh, I'm not going to publish. The, I, let me tell you a general principle. Uh, the general principle of life is this. And obviously, you know, I've got big math, so part of it I don't adhere to. It's not necessary to say everything you think which is the hardest thing I find to be in control of. So it's not necessary to say everything you think. It's not necessary to write everything you say. It's not necessary to 
print everything or publish everything you write because eventually you get to the, the point where you might have to backtrack. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm very um, free with my speech, but I'm very conservative with a small c with what I choose to publish. And uh, I won't be publishing that. I've, I've, I've written to, I've, I've spoken to on, on this subject with, with some of the senior physicists at MIT, as I said, and some of them think I'm an absolute heretic. Others agree that what I'm on to, what I'm talking about is uh, correct. But, you know, that's it. No, that's, that's the end of the conversation. I want to get back to Yechezkel, and we're, we're running out of time here. So I want, I want, what is, what, what I've just said about, what I've just said about um, the rainbow and how it was created and why it was a big chiddish at the time because of the change in the, the structure um, the elemental structure of light and the, the structure of the photon and the fact that light could now be diffused and human beings could now actually see uh, the diffused visible light in seven beautiful colors, which we call uh, Roy G. Biv, red, orange, yellow, uh, green, um, blue, indigo and violet. Uh, Roy G. Biv, as, it, as we described it in school. What's that got to do with what Yechezkel saw? So what Yechezkel saw was Kamari Hakeshes. These are his words. It was like the rainbow, Asheyir Be'anon Biyom Hageshet, that um, appears in the sky, in the clouds, on the day of rain. Kain Mara Hanoga Soviv, Hu Mara Demus Kavod Hashem. That was the appearance of the brightness around the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. What word in that posuk is... Superfluous, or two words in that posuk, a superfluous. Our oh, posuk, verse twenty-eight. There are two words that don't need to be there. Based on your understanding of God's promise after the flood, what two words in that verse do not need to be there? Silence, silence shall be the. Have you look? Is everyone got a Tanakh in front of them? Is everybody looking at verse twenty-eight? Come, I'll read it to you, and you tell me there are two words there that are superfluous. Kamare hakeshes. You had the appearance of a rainbow. Asheyir beonon beyom hageshet. That is in the clouds on the day of rain. Kain mara hanoga sovivhu. That is like the appearance of the halo or the aura around Mara de Muscovod Hashem, the appearance of the glory of God. There are two words there that have no business being there. Uh, they don't need to be there. We, wouldn't, we would understand the verse perfectly well without them. When does a rainbow occur? Yeah. Does it say the sun shining? What? Can you have a rainbow without the, without the rain? On a not rainy day? No. The word... So what words, what, what, what two words are, are superfluous in this verse? Well, okay... 
it has to be in the it has to be no he has to tell you where where the where the rainbow is it's in the clouds yes well no kamara hakeshes you could have a rainbow but it doesn't have to be in the clouds you could have a rainbow through a prism right so you have to know where it is but once you know where it is do you need to know it's on the day that it's been raining Isn't yeah? Isn't isn't it obvious that it's a rainy day if you've got a if you've got a rainbow in the sky? There's an it doesn't say the sun was out because that's obvious. The sun comes out and it it, it interacts the light. The photons interact with the droplets of rain and they form a rainbow. Correct. Correct. So the words beyom hageshem don't are not really necessary. Because you'd automatically know it. If the verse said, Kamare Hakeshes, like the, the, the appearance of a rainbow, that were in the clouds, Cain Mara, you'd automatically know that it'd been a rainy day and the sun had come out, wouldn't you? No, 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 no. But no, no, no. There's no suggestion. It's Hakeshes. So, what is going on in this verses like this? I'm, I'm, we're running out of time. So, what's what's the word Geshev mean here? And we're going to have to. Unfortunately, we're not going to finish the chapter the chapter today. We're going to have to come back to it. Let me read this verse to you again. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to leave you with this with this idea here. What's what's going again? I've just explained to you that light is uh, at the at the point uh, after the flood. You've got a different type of light, as Rashi explained. The pure, compressed, uh, indiffusible light has disappeared from the earth. The, the, what you've got now, which is what we see, is the light, the full electromagnetic spectrum, part of the light, um, the spectrum we can see, but the vast majority of it we can't see. The only things we can see are the seven colors. So now, let's go back to the verse. So Kamari Hakeshes, he's described, what is he seeing? What is he seeing? He's seeing the rainbow. He's seeing the seven colors. Can you think of any other way of translating Biyom Hageshem? Pardon? Efri, what's the root of the word? Get Gimel Shin Mem. What else would, would you... Uh, Ascribe to the word Geshe. Gashmias, which is what? No, the opposite. Okay, so maybe what would happen if you read this? Kamare Hakeshes. I'm just giving you a clue because we're going to have to finish this next week. Kamare Hakeshes. Yechezkel's describing like the vision, I, like the, it, it was like a rainbow. Like the appearance of a rainbow, which appears in the clouds, during the day, but a particular way that it appears, it's Hageshem. That's the way the rainbow appears where? In the physical world. In the physical world. In the physical world, what can you see of the rainbow? What's missing? But what do you see? 
And what 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 don't you see? What else don't you see? God, it's like taking blood out of a stone. You don't see the rest of the spectrum. You don't see anything else. Light is made up of that the rest of the spectrum is invisible to you. Now read the verse. Kamari Hakeshes. We'll deal with this next. We'll finish this off next week. Kamari Hakeshes. What I was seeing was like the appearance of a rainbow. Asher Yebe Anon. In the physical world, Biyama Geshem. In the physical sense. In the physical world, you only see the, 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 the white light, the diffused white light, the seven colors. Kain Marahanoga Sovivu. That was what I was saw, the appearance of the brightness that was only round Mara de Muscovod Hashem. What's he describing to you? Gee whiz, we're Monday afternoon, and it's only Monday afternoon. What he's saying is this. What he's saying is this. I recognize, because I'm a physical being, that there's a... There's a rainbow out there. The rainbow is representative of the whole electromagnetic spectrum. All I can see is that tiny bit within that electromagnetic spectrum, which are the seven colors of visible light, seven parts of visible light. 99% of the spectrum is invisible to me. What is he saying? And then he says... Which is a Cain Marahanoga Sovivu Mara de Hashem. What is he telling you that he's recognizing? That when he's looking at God and he's looking at the vision of God, what he's seeing is almost nothing. He's seeing almost nothing. That is what he's describing. And I'll, I'll bring that, I'll bring that out next week. Uh, Explain exactly, and this is, this will, I'll prove to you uh, from this, this way of understanding it, that this is a continuation of verse 27. This, this verse, verse 28 does not stand alone. It's a continuation of verse 27. In verse 27, we learned that parts of the essence of God can't be seen because it's chashmal, it's chashmal. It's on the one hand silent, and on the other hand, it is, it makes noise. On the one hand, it is mercy. On the one hand, it is justice. On the one hand, it is destruction. On the one hand, it's redemption. These are paradoxes to the human being. This is another paradox that Yechezkel is describing. He's describing the paradox of an appearance of God's kavod, but the reality, he knows that what he is seeing is nothing of the kind. What he's seeing is a tiny, visible, noga, just a aura that sticks out from God's glory. And the rest of it, like with an, a rainbow and light, the rest of it remains invisible and indivisible to him. Anyway, we'll bring that out next week. Uh, I'll finish this off quickly next week and we'll move on to the second chapter. <clears throat> if anybody's got any questions, now's the time to ask. Sure.
you you can you can do that, but but we you can you can you can do that, but we won't be doing that because the RE uh, gives a warning not to discuss that in great detail in an open forum. But you are you are you are yes, it is a, it is it is something to be discussed, but not in an open forum. Yes. Colonymous. There, there is an English version. If there's an English version, then I've, uh, I, I would suggest whoever can get a copy of it to do so because it's, uh, it is exactly.